We'll do a three-week series. This is the first one. Uh, love that forgives sin. A love that forgives sin. You know, all across our nation this morning, there's churches filled with people on this Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, whatever you want to call it. There's, there's churches filled with people who feel guilty because they think they've done something so bad that God couldn't forgive them. They think they've done something so wrong and crossed some line, some imaginary line, and they can never be forgiven. Most of the time, uh, those big sins involve something big, right? Like adultery or you know, same-sex attraction or uh, adultery or prostitution or whatever. You know, we, we think that some sins are bigger than others, and we put different magnitudes on things. Right? Some things are big, and some things are not. But the reality is, they're all the same. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter what it is. There's really no scale to it. There's not a different magnitude. So the issue here with these people, though, the people that think this way, maybe you're one of them, maybe you think that you've crossed some line and God can't forgive you, the issue is that you have a wounded heart. Because you think that forgiveness is for everybody else, but it's not for you. You think you're not worthy of forgiveness or deserving of forgiveness. So this morning, I want to show you that you are. And I want to do it from a couple of different passages again. This is love, love that forgives sin. The first thing I want you to see is that God's forgiveness is not about what you deserve. God's forgiveness is not at all about what you deserve. There's a couple passages I'm going to get to in a minute. But again, I want you to understand right from the start that, that your forgiveness from God, what happened on the cross, secured forgiveness. It, is, it has nothing to do with what you deserve. Matter of fact, none of us deserve forgiveness. To be all honest, if, if we deserved it, it wouldn't be forgiveness. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be love or mercy or grace. It's not about what we deserve. So whatever you've done that you think is too big, whatever you want to put in the blank, whatever that thing is in your life, understand that it doesn't disqualify you from forgiveness. It doesn't disqualify you from receiving forgiveness and grace and mercy and all those things that God wants to give us. Amen? The reality is that's the first part of the process. The first part of forgiveness is that I have an awareness. You know, we, The Christian term is conviction, right? That I'm aware of what I'm doing wrong. That's the first part of the process. So if that's where you are, then you're in a great place. And you've got to understand that it has nothing to do with, with what you deserve. The next part of the process is I confess that. Confess it means that I, that I confess it to God, that I see it the same way that God sees it, and He tells us how He sees those things in His Word. So I have an acknowledgement of my sin, I confess it, and the next step is repent of it. Now that doesn't mean to say I'm sorry to keep going down the same path. The word repent technically means to change direction. So that means if I'm going this direction and God's told me that, hey, this way is wrong, that I don't just say, okay, God, I'm sorry, I keep going this way, but that I turn and I go this way. That I do a 180 degree turn and go the opposite direction because God has convicted me and showed me that this way is not right. And then the, the final stage is a changed life. Because when I turn this way and I start pursuing these things, God starts working in my heart and mind. He begins to renew my heart and mind through his word. He makes me a different person and he changes me from the inside out. Amen? And that process works the same for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It's the same process. You say, well, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. I don't care. Because I don't care what you've done. It's not greater than, than God's forgiveness. It's not greater than what Jesus did on the cross. The things we've sung about for the last 20 minutes. Nothing he's done is greater than that. Amen? I guarantee you, whatever it is, God can handle it. Let me just give you a couple examples of Scripture. The first one is David. This is Psalm 103, verses 10 and 12. 
If you're not familiar with David, David was a king in the Old Testament. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. But David was out on the roof one day and saw this woman, one of his neighbors, and I won't get into the whole story, but he ends up having an affair with this woman named Bathsheba. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. Later on, though, what, what makes it even worse is he doesn't just have an affair with Bathsheba, but he orchestrates these events to have Bathsheba's husband killed so he can take her as his wife. So he sends Uriah with her husband. He sends Uriah to the front line of battle and arranges for him to be sent out and killed in battle so he can take this woman as his wife. So the man that the Bible says is a, a man after God's own heart. He's a murderer and he's an adulterer. You got me? Listen to what he says here. Psalm 103, verses 10 and 12. This is David writing, He, that he is God. God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What's he saying? He's saying that basically those sins we just talked about, when I realize I'm going the wrong way, when I confess those things and repent, and when I change direction, God removes those things from me. And he takes them so far away that they're never an issue again. As far as the east is from the west. How far is that? How far is the east from the west? It's limitless is the idea. They never meet. They never touch. Right? You can't measure the distance that east is from the west. And that's how far they are removed from us. Let me give you another example. How about the Apostle Paul? Before, before the Apostle Paul met Jesus and Jesus radically changed his life, what was he doing? He was running around persecuting Christians. He was arresting them and dragging them into court for trials that he knew were going to, was going to lead to their execution. And they were going to be dead just because, basically because he arrested them. And he actually had letters from the religious leaders of the day to go all over the country and find these Christians and drag them into court, knowing that they were going to be executed. Matter of fact, I can't quite prove it, but I'm pretty pretty convinced based on Scripture that he was actually at the stoning of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. Stephen was the first one killed for his faith. He was stoned to death. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And I'm pretty sure that, that the Apostle Paul was standing there. The guy who was a murderer, who was hunting down Christians, Listen to what he says later on. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am what? Chief. Let me give you another example. How about the thief on the cross? Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's a guy on each side of him. Jesus, right before he dies, says, Father, what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Then the thief beside of him talks to him and basically asking for forgiveness, right? And Jesus tells the, the, the this is what he tells the uh, the, the the sinner, the, the thief beside him on the cross. Jesus said to him, Lord, or excuse me, he said to Jesus, Lord, remember when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. I don't know what you've done. You said, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But I would imagine that you're not an adulterous and a murderer. I would imagine you haven't drug Christians into court and lined up their executions and stood there and stole a few of them. I would imagine that you weren't hanging on a cross beside Jesus. What I want you to see is that it has nothing to do with what you deserve. Because all these guys, guess what they deserve? Not what they got. You and I, what do we get? Not what we deserve. Because the Bible says what we deserve is death. 
The Bible says the wages of sin, the wages of being a sinner, the penalty of being a sinner is death. That's what we all deserve. But that verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's not about what we deserve. It's about the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And what I want you to understand this morning is if these three people can receive grace, then certainly we can. If these three people can receive God's love and mercy, then certainly we can. Out of all this, I love what David says best. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. So when I confess it, when I repent of it and go the opposite way, when I when I let God change me, those sins are gone. They're removed. So here's the question for you. If they're removed, why do I keep wallowing in those things? Why do I keep reminding myself or letting the enemy remind me of those things and beating myself up over stuff in the past that God's already forgotten and it's gone? The Bible says he has removed those things from me. Yes, he has removed the penalty, but here, sometimes it's hard to forget those things, right? So we need to walk in the reality of Psalm 103, 10, and 12, knowing that, hey, you know, God doesn't remember them, so why should I? They're removed. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west. It's not, it's not about what I deserve. So listen. Quit listening to the enemy. That's what I want to tell you this morning. Quit listening to the enemy. Quit listening to him tell you that you're not worthy of grace and mercy. Quit listening to him tell you that, that you don't deserve forgiveness or you're not worthy of love and mercy and grace because none of us are deserve love, mercy, and grace. Quit listening to him when he tells you you can never be forgiven because that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. I don't care what you've done, you can be forgiven. Again, these are examples. Amen? God's forgiveness is not about what you deserve. Number two, quickly, once you see God's forgiveness is not about your good deeds. Passage on the screen is Mark 3, verses 28 through 30. I apologize for the small print. He says, Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. You, you stop right there. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy, Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Verse 30, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Again, going back to this idea that we want to put things on a scale. Right? We want big, big sins and little sins and some sins in between. And, and that's really sort of the idea here. And there's some churches and some groups who have propagated this idea that there's some things that you can do that are unforgivable. And this is the verse they usually use, and they take it out of context. Because this verse says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemy they utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. You see, the enemy wants us to think that we've committed some unpardonable sin, some unforgivable offense. Now, what that is depends on who you talk to. Some groups, some denominations will tell you that the unpardonable sin is suicide. Some will tell you that the, and I've been in churches who they don't really tell you this, but they sort of act like the unpardonable sin is divorce. Right? If you've been divorced, then man, you're done. God can't do nothing with you. That's a lie. But what this is, again, depends on who you talk to. But I want you to know that none of those are right. Because, it's, again, what's very important in, in reading the Bible is one word context. Because I can take anything from any passage and pull it out and make it say something that I want it to say, but that's not the way it works. You see, you've got to read it in context. And if you read this, these, these verses 28 through 30 in context, 
is very clear here because Jesus is talking to, who's he talking to in this passage? He's talking to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The, the creme de la creme of the religious institution, right? I mean, the guys who were supposed to know it all. And he's talking to them about their rejection of the Holy Spirit. So, so what are they rejecting? So here's the deal. Think about this. Over and over and over again, I mean, time after time, the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious leaders, rejected the truth of who Jesus was. They willfully, blindfully rejected and said, nope, that's not who he is. Amen? You with me? So they willfully rejected truth. What happens when I reject truth? Well, here's what happens. Over time, as I reject truth and I keep rejecting truth, what happens is I become spiritually insensitive. And the things that, the things where the Holy Spirit used to work and where, you know, you know when you, let me, let me do it this way. You know when you mess up and you know you mess up? You get that, the Holy Spirit just sort of gives you a spiritual smack. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't ever mess up, but I do. Yeah, so really, I mean, right? When, you, when it happens, as soon as you do it, boom, and you know it, right? It's conviction. It's the Holy Spirit checking. Well, see, blasphemy the Holy Spirit is where basically you ignore that, and you never do anything about it. And you see, that's what's going on with the scribes and Pharisees. They had saw Jesus perform miracles. They knew who Jesus was. They saw all these miraculous saints and heard all these great truths, but they had rejected the Spirit's witness of Christ and who He was. So you get to a point when that continues, and when you quit listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, when you keep suppressing that check, you get a, you get to a point where you're just immune, and your heart your heart becomes hard, and you don't hear nothing or feel nothing. That's where you end up. That is blasphemy the Holy Spirit. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Because again, over and over, they saw Jesus. I mean, they, they saw all these great and amazing things. So let's notice what he tells them. Though. He says, all sins will be forgiven, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Why is that? The reason they can never be forgiven is because they were not coming to him for forgiveness. They didn't want forgiveness. They didn't want nothing to do with Jesus. They completely rejected who he was. They completely rejected the truth about who he was. They completely rejected the ministry of the Holy Spirit about who he was. They rejected it all. So they couldn't be forgiven because they wouldn't come to him for forgiveness. It wasn't that they were too bad for Jesus to forgive. They were too good. You with me? So they wouldn't lower themselves to the standard and, and follow the direction of the Holy Spirit to submit themselves to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who was standing right before them. But they rejected that and then want to turn back to the law of the Old Testament and said, no, this is the way. Right? That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Listen, really, I'll make it as simple as I can make it. At the, at the root, the issue here is unbelief and unrepentance. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees were. They're the poster child of unrepentance. You with me? Amen? All right. And evidently they were attributing what Jesus was doing to the devil because he talks about that later on because they said he has an unclean spirit. And they said, well, all this stuff Jesus is doing, again, they rejected the truth of who he was, they rejected the spirit's ministry, so now they say, hey, all this stuff Jesus is doing is energized by the devil. He has an unclean spirit. He's got a demon in him. That's why he's doing these things. Right? Blasphemy the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. Remember that check I talked about all ago? When you mess up and you get that check from the Holy Spirit, 
the very fact, the very fact that you are aware of your sin and you're filling that check means that you haven't got here. If you feel and sense the Holy Spirit working in your life, then you are nowhere close to the unpardonable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Spirit's witness about Christ and the things that pertain to Him and the truth of the Gospel. So how do you fix that? How do you not do this? Well, I think there's three things. Number one is you have to walk in humility every day of your life. You've got to walk in humility and realize that, yes, we all mess up. We all make mistakes and understand that grace is not a license to go do whatever I want. But because I love the Father and I want to please the Father, I'll live the way He wants me to live. So I walk in humility. Number two is I just have a knowledge of my sin. And when God checks me, when I get that thought from the Holy Spirit, I deal with it. I don't wait till I get back to church because you don't have to be at church. Right? I don't I, mean, I don't care if you're driving down the road and you get it, you just deal with it. Pray to Him driving down the road, it doesn't matter. The point is you don't delay. you got, you got to acknowledge sin, you got to deal with it. And then the second thing is just place your faith in Jesus. As, as the song said earlier, there's no addition to the cross. Man, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? So again, if you're there and you're feeling that check of the Spirit, there's no need to worry about the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Because it's not divorce and you know, it's not any of those things we talked about. It's rejecting the Spirit's witness. So again, forgiveness, it's not about how good you are. Because man, these were these were the good guys. From religious from religious perspective, there was none better than these. Yet they're he they were blasting the Holy Spirit. They were committing the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, if you want to put it that way. It's not about how good or bad you are. Listen, even, even the scribes and the Pharisees didn't make the cut. Think about that. They didn't make the cut. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, this is this way, a very familiar verse. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not our works, lest any man should boast. Forgiveness is not about your good deeds. And everybody said, Amen. Number three, and lastly, God's forgiveness is about His love for you. Probably the most famous Bible verse there is, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. I think the reason this verse is so familiar is because it clearly and simply communicates the God. I love it. And actually, even better is 16, 17, and 18 when you put it all together. Because next he says that he didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through his Son might be saved. So you get what he done, and you get the motive of why he did it. But notice, the, the reality is all of this is a very simple verse. There are some ideas here that's very hard to wrap our mind around. And I think the greatest one is the love of God. Why is it difficult? It's difficult because, number one, because we're sitting here with finite minds that can only comprehend so much. And we're trying to wrap our minds around an infinite God that's all-powerful. I mean, stop and think about that. That don't make sense. Start with it. The creation trying to understand the creator, right? The limited trying to understand the limitless. We can try. What makes it even more difficult is the nature of God, the love of God, the expressions of God are so countercultural to everything on our world, in our world. Everything in our culture is in our culture is completely contrary to the love of God. 
You see, we live in a, in a society and a culture that most often what you see is conditional love. We hear things like, I will love you if, right? And then there's some phrase behind it. I will love you if you never mess up. Or I'll love you if you do this for me. Or I'll love you if you, know, you look like this. Or I'll love you if you act like this. Or I'll love you if you make enough money. Or I'll love you if you do things my way. Or I'll, the one you hear a lot today is I'll love you if you agree with me. Right? I'll love you if you love me back. But this says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word love is the word is agape. You know, we try to define it, we can't really define it because it's the God love again. Creation, trying to understand the creator. Hard to do. The best definition is unconditional love by choice. Unconditional. There's no conditions with God's love. He doesn't say, I love you. Hey, I'll send Jesus to the cross if you just keep doing this. Right. Or I'll send Jesus to the cross if you just do what I tell you to do. Now, it was nothing like that. He said, Right, he still loved the world that he gave his only son. Another verse says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he, it's unconditional love, and it, it is a love by choice. He, he loves us because he chooses to love us. And just stop and think about that. That's awesome. That the God of all creation, who spoke everything you see into existence like that, loves you. That's awesome. And the Bible says that because he loves us that much, he willingly sacrificed his only son, Jesus. That, that phrase, only begotten, the best translation is unique. I, I love that phrase, because that's really what it means. That he sacrificed his own, the one and only, his unique son, never to be another, never will be another, never a need for another. His unique son, only son, was sacrificed on the cross for us. Let that sink in for a second. For you. Because that word, that word world, that word, word, world, get out and say, God so loved the world. It's a very generic term. So let's make it personal. For God so loved your name that he gave his only son. You can put your name in the blood. You're part of the world, amen. For God so loved even Jennifer <laughs> that he gave his only son. you got to pick on somebody besides Brian. You pick on people, you know they won't get mad. I know they don't care. And even Brian. For, for God so loved Brian. Amen. I mean, seriously, think about that. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. I don't know about you, but it kills me just to think of that. And I'll tell you, you know, our church is a little over four years old. You know, there's people in here that I've only known a few short years of. Honestly, I feel like I've been in my life, my entire life. Dear, dear friends. I would do anything to help you. I would do anything to assist you. I would do anything I can for you. But... I don't think I could sacrifice my sons for him yet. Just be real. Matter of fact, I probably get closer to sacrificing myself 
for you than my sons. But he says that he loved us so much that he gave his only son. And he did that, that whosoever, no qualifier there, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. There's no need for anyone to perish. There's no need for anyone to be eternally separated from God because he gave the gift and he made the way back. Amen? In his infinite love. So listen, if you're here this morning, I want you to understand one thing. That God loves you so very much that he sacrificed his unique son, one and only, never to be enough, on the cross for you. And I'm convinced that it was just, if it was just you, he would have done the same thing. For you. He loves you that much. He, for God so loved you that he gave his only son. And I want you to know, secondly, that that love for you is unconditional. There's no strings attached. He doesn't tell you that he'll love you if you go to church. Like you should go to church, but he didn't tell you that. He doesn't say, I'll love you if you read your Bible. He doesn't say, I'll love you if you spend time in prayer. I'll love you if you live right. I'll love you if you don't mess up. He didn't say those things. He says simply, I love you. And the cross is proof of that love. Again, all those things are great, and we should be doing all those things, but his love for me is not dependent on those things. It's not conditioned. He loves us out of choice because he chooses to love us, not because of anything we give to him or can give to him. So the cross is proof of his love. It costs him tremendously, but he wants you to experience that love. Because as I said a while ago, it's hard, it's hard to wrap our minds around this love of God. And the truth is, it's best experienced than explained. So if you're here this morning, you've never experienced, I pray that today, you will. You'll make a decision to trust Him and you'll experience that love for the first time. I promise you, 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 won't, you won't regret it. But listen, you've you got to know that there is no plan D. There is no alternate path. There is no other choice. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And God gave Jesus to the world as a free gift, as a way back, as a ransom and payment for our sins, and there is no other way. And his desire is that you and I accept that gift and experience that love like we've never known before. Amen? But here's my question, very simple this. Here's what you can think about. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Not your neighbor. Not the person across from you, but you. What are you going to do in response to that gift of love? Stand your feet, Will. I'm going to come back up. So just let me let me recap real quick. Number one, it's not about what you deserve. Please, please understand that. It's, it has nothing to do with what you deserve. It doesn't matter what you've done, the blood of Jesus will cover it. Number two, it's not about your good deeds or works. You can't earn it. I don't care what you do. You can never get there on your own. You can never work your way there. It's not about works. It's about faith. Number three, I want you to know it's about his love for you. The cross is proof of a love that forgives him. So again, my question, what are you going to do in response to, to his great gifts of love? Maybe you're here today and you need to begin a relationship with him. You've never accepted him. And I'll be honored to explain that process to you and to walk you through that. Maybe you're here today and you just 
need to quit running. Man, you just need to surrender and lay it down and say, okay, God, I'm done. Because that love I'm talking about, listen, that love will pursue you till there's nothing left to pursue. He will not give up. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been running and running and running, and today is the day to quit running. And to surrender and say, okay, God, hands off, it's yours. Maybe you're here and you're just not where you should be. Maybe this morning through something you've realized that you just need to recommit your life and give it give it back to them. Maybe I know I know I'm real bad to lay things down and then pick them back up again next week and take off with them again. And maybe you're here and you've done that. Maybe there's something that you just need to lay down and say, okay, God, here it is. But there's officers over here. If you just raise your hand, I'll come to you and pray with you. You know you have to come up front. Whatever. I just want you to be obedient. And I want you to answer the question, what do you need to do in morning, this morning? in response to his prayer gift of love. So, Father, we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection that makes all of this possible. God, we thank you that you've conquered everything that's in our lives already. And that we, we walk and we march and we live from a stance of victory if we're in you. And, Father, I just pray that you would just lead us and guide us right now. God, that you would speak to individuals in their hearts. And God, you just help them to do whatever it is they need to do. Maybe they need to accept you. Maybe they need to just surrender. Whatever, God. Just have your will and way. In each heart and life. Christ, name we pray. And everyone says, Amen.